I actually don't make a distinction between above the neck and below the neck. Um, you know, I think these are all physical illnesses. They've got psychiatric components, but psychiatry is biological. You know, the bacteria in your gut is biological. We have to look at biology and psychiatry as linked. Um, so, you know, do I think there's hope? Yes. Do I think we're too late? I mean, far too many people have died from this illness. I, I wish we could have done this 20 years ago. And I, I just think it is appalling that anorexia still kills people. Um, it, it, it shouldn't. It's crazy that it still has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness. And, you know, my, that what drives me, what gets me out of bed in the morning is I want to stop that. If this is hopefully this will be a path that will take us down to some answers so we can treat this illness more quickly, more effectively and keep people well. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, welcome to this week's podcast. This week, you'll hear the conversation that I had with Cynthia Bulett, who is a distinguished professor of eating disorders in the Department of Psychiatry in the School of Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And she's also founding director of the UNC Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders, as well as professor of medical epidemiology and biostatistics in Stockholm, Sweden. Many of you will know of her work, and I'm guessing that some of you will already feel a lot of gratitude for her passion for forwarding the understanding of eating disorders. If you're already a fan of her work, then you're going to love listening to this podcast, as the passion clearly shows. I invited Cynthia Buick to the podcast to discuss the latest research, and that's a study that's identified the first genetic locus for anorexia nervosa and has revealed that there also may be metabolic underpinnings. So we talk about that, and we talk about the implications for treatment and the implications for people struggling with anorexia. When I first read about this research, I was very excited about it. But after this conversation with Cynthia Bulick, I was giddy. I really hope that you enjoy it as well and get as much out of this as I did. The first question that I asked Cynthia Bulick was to tell us a little bit about herself. Here's the podcast. Okay, so my name is Cynthia Bulick, and I have two positions. I am 50% at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill where I'm the founding director of the Center for Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders. And the other half of my life is spent in Stockholm, Sweden, where I'm a professor in the Department of Medical Epidemiology and Biostatistics, and I am the director of the Center for Eating Disorders Innovation. And how long have you been working in this field? Since 1982. Okay. And what, <laughs> why did you start? It's an interesting story, actually. So I actually started out uh, being interested in studying childhood depression. And the person I was working with in Pittsburgh was asked to write a chapter comparing sleep EEGs, so you know, brain waves during sleep, in people with depression versus people with anorexia. And he didn't have time to write the chapter. So he said, Cindy, I really need your help writing this chapter. Can you please do it? And I was like, I don't know anything about this. Um, and so what I decided to do was shadow the psychiatrist who ran the eating disorders program in Pittsburgh. And I went up to the unit and I shadowed for like a week. And I just got intrigued. And it, I was like, you know, these people at this point were sort of my age. Um, and they seemed really bright and conversant. And I had really interesting conversations with them. But they were just so enormously thin and they didn't eat and they were so afraid of eating. And I just got 
interested right then and there in this topic. Um, I wrote the chapter. Um, but at that point, I think I also realized that sort of two parts of my life converged that I didn't know were ever going to converge. I was also a competitive figure skater. And throughout my entire time, like there were always these mostly girls who would just start losing a lot of weight. And then all of a sudden they would sort of disappear and nobody talked about it. And it was all hush hush and they never came back to skating. And, you know, as the years passed, I started realizing, oh, my God, this is what was going on. Um, and I had one other little skater friend who every time we went to her house, her refrigerator was actually padlocked shut. And if we wanted food, we had to ask her mom for the key. And to us, it was just like a normal thing. When we go to her house, we ask for the key, we open up the refrigerator, we eat things, we lock it up again. Uh, this was before bulimia even existed. But as it turns out, she just had horrible bulimia and she would eat everything in the refrigerator and vomit it all up. And my mom found this out and we were like, wow, that's really something. And all this just sort of came together and my life path was paved for me. <laughs> so that was it. Um, you're right. I mean, it's fascinating. <laughs> it's it's. It's a bit different from fascinating when you're in it, but even, yeah, you know, as yeah. it is a fascinating illness. Um, and so what would you say, uh, so you started off there and then, you know, but a lot of people start working in the field of eating disorders and, and don't quite, I would say, do as much as, as you have done. Right. Yeah. I guess nothing ever made sense to me. And I'm the type of person where if I start digging my teeth into something, I get really serious about getting to the bottom of it. You know, and I started, I remember when I started teaching things about eating disorders, it was really wacky stuff. It was because I was trained really psychoanalytically, believe it or not. And, you know, I, it was like, oh, I guess it's fears of oral impregnation. And, you know, there are these like family prototypes that, you know, the controlling mother and the inability to resolve conflict. And I was working with these people and I wasn't seeing this stuff. And I was like, come on, in, in order for these people, the people who have anorexia nervosa, to exert this much control over a fundamental, fundamental biological process that is necessary for life, they would have to be the most strong people on the universe. And, and granted, they are pretty strong, and the disorder is very strong, but I was convinced there was something that we were missing, and I've sort of been trying to chip away at that ever since. Yeah, and thank God, because... <laughs> yeah. Try and be on the other side when you're in a doctor's oh. office being told that it was your parents that are causing this. And I'm like, my parents are wonderful. What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. And the same thing for the poor parents. I mean, so many times parents have come to me and said, you know, they've taken their kid to a pediatrician or a family practitioner. And the doctor has said, you know, your daughter doesn't have a problem. You're the problem. And that just breaks my heart. You know, that has... That has sent so many families into absolute, you know, turmoil, bankruptcy. You know, it's disrupted the family. It's almost created, it's created distrust and questions in the family because, you know, the kids start thinking, gee, maybe my parents were really bad, you know, but they weren't, you know? And so, yeah, so that's really what sort of catapulted me into full speed ahead into trying to figure out what's really going on. And over your career, and you've done a a lot of papers <laughs> um what what would you say if you could if you could think back to what what stands out and things that you've researched sure well interestingly when we first started thinking about doing the genetics of anorexia people thought we were crazy 
they basically said, you know, of all the psychiatric disorders that are not going to be genetic, it's anorexia nervosa because wow. it's so obvious that it's a, a social illness and wow. it's just people wanting to look like, you know, models. And, and I was like, oh, God. Um, and really, if you look over the course of my career and many other people's career, the genetic research that has been done on anorexia nervosa has not been funded by like the NIH and different federal agencies. It's all been funded by foundations that tend to have people in their families who have had anorexia. And these people like me are like, hey, there's something else going on here. My child has been you know, abducted by some process that isn't typical for her or him. Um, so I think, you know, some of those first studies, the twin studies that we did, well, I'll go back one step. So actually the family studies that we did were the first index that were, was clear that these disorders run in families. But even then people would say, well, you know, things can run in families for a lot of reasons. You know, and people would say things like, well, these are just girls imitating their mothers. Oh, you know, and I would sort of gasp and lose it and say, no, we've got to look deeper. And then when we went into the twin studies and we really started showing that not only do they run in families, but the reason they run in families are genetic reasons. They are heritable. Um, and then we got these replicated studies in a bunch of different countries showing that the heritability of anorexia is somewhere between you know, 50 and 60%. Um, it was like, all right, we are on the right path now. And then finally, the field caught up to us. We got new tools and can, we can really get to the point now we're identifying the genes that are actually responsible for this illness. So it's been a long kind of twisted road, but I think we're finally on, you know, I call it the precipice of genetic discovery. You know, we are, now that we found this first gene, you know, we are at the point where hopefully with increasing sample size, we're going to take off. And this is sort of a, a beautiful fairy tale of collaboration because, you know, in the history of psychiatry, collaboration hasn't exactly been something that people have excelled at. But we all realize that in order to do these genome-wide association studies, you need large sample sizes. So we're talking tens of thousands and maybe even hundreds of thousands to really identify all of the genes that influence an illness. And you can't do that with one clinic. So you have to pull clinicians and researchers together to create these large samples of people with the illness, and then people who are matched to them ancestrally um, who have never had the illness. So we pulled together um, clinicians and researchers from 15 different countries. Um, and this, this is an interesting little anecdote. So I was watching the other psychiatric disorders and how they had done this. Of course, they're always ahead of us because they have more funding and, you know, they have more um, people who are actually in the field. And I was, I was sitting alone in a hotel room that we had rented in Germany, waiting for my parents to come over. And I was like, I just got um, this moment of determination. And I was like, anorexia has to catch up. So I started sending emails and calling everybody I knew in the field asking, do you have any like DNA in your freezer from people who have had anorexia? And it was so interesting because all of these people from around the world had samples that were in their freezer, but they couldn't do anything with them because it was maybe a hundred here or a hundred there. And so we pulled together this consortium um, and we ended up getting funded by the Wellcome Trust. We were actually the only psychiatric disorder that was funded um, at the WTCC, WTCCC3, so the third round of the Wellcome Trust Case Control Consortium. Um, and that gave us the funds to genotype, to bring them all together and to genotype these samples. 
And when we just did the genome-wide association study um, on that sample, and just to clarify what that is, like in the past, they did like these candidate gene studies where they would just pluck out one gene and say, you know, is this different in people with or without anorexia nervosa? And that's like insane in retrospect, because, you know, we've got like 23,000 genes. And to think that one gene is going to influence something as complex as anorexia is crazy. Um, but genome-wide association studies, basically, they scatter millions of markers across the whole genome. And then they compare the whole genomes of large groups of people with the illness to large groups of people without the illness. And then say, where do the differences lie? Those are the genes that are implicated. So that, that welcome trust group that we did, um, you know, still had, it was a fairly small sample size. It was under 5,000 and we got no hits, no genome-wide significant hits that say, you know, that screamed out, I'm associated with anorexia. Another group, um, the Price Foundation and Children's Hospital um, of Philadelphia had done a similar GWAS and they too didn't have enough participants and they had a null GWAS. They didn't have any findings. So again, you know, you put your diplomatic hat on, you start doing some negotiation, you say, we've got to collaborate and pull these samples together. Um, we pulled them together under the auspices of the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium, which is the largest collaboration in the history of psychiatry. So we have over 800 investigators and almost a million samples in the freezer across different psychiatric disorders. It's an amazing thing to be part of. Um, and we combined our two GWASs to increase statistical power. Um, and lo and behold, we got our, our first hit. And the neat thing about that hit is it's been implicated in the past, both in type 1 diabetes and in autoimmune illnesses. Um, and that's really interesting because we see a lot of autoimmune illnesses in people with anorexia nervosa. And type 1 diabetes is very much in that metabolic quadrant um, that we're very interested in. Um, and that was only actually one part of the study. There's uh, an even more exciting part of the study that I think is completely changing the way we should look at anorexia. And what that is, is we calculated genetic correlations. Now, everybody knows what a correlation is. Um, you know, like sunshine is correlated with sunburn. You know, they both co-occur phenotypically. But a genetic correlation is when the same genes are acting to affect totally different traits. Um, and a positive correlation means that those same genes are acting in the same direction. And a negative correlation means that those same genes are working in opposite directions. And what we found is we found positive genetic correlations with a variety of psychiatric phenotypes like schizophrenia, neuroticism, bunch of other psychiatric disorders, which makes sense. Anorexia is a psychiatric disorder, so it's important that we keep paying attention to that part of it. But then we found these really striking correlations with a bunch of metabolic and anthropometric um, parameters. So we saw strong negative correlations with obesity at BMI, um, which I would never have predicted. Um, and what that, but they were going in the opposite direction. So it basically means that the same genes that are operative in obesity and in ex and anorexia, it's the same genes, but they're pushing in opposite directions, having opposite biological effects. Um, and the same thing with a bunch of other insulin parameters and lipid parameters, um, that if you pull it all together and you look at the pattern of correlations, it just jumps right out at you that there is a metabolic component to anorexia nervosa as well. And that's the big finding. How should, would that affect treatment? 
Okay, so first I'm going to tell a story. And I don't know, you know, sometimes little light bulbs go off and you ask yourself the question, why didn't this light bulb ever go off before? Um, and the, the context for this is if you think about the treatment of obesity, everyone knows if you take someone who is obese and you put them on a diet, they're going to lose a lot of weight in the short run, but their body is going to pull them right back up to where they were and probably beyond that. Um, and what that is usually referred to is a high set point. So the body reaches this extreme. It has a set point where it's really comfortable. And no matter what you do, exercise, food, um, your body is going to want to go right back up there. On the other side of the spectrum, that is exactly what we see in anorexia nervosa. So if someone comes into the hospital with a really low BMI, you know, a BMI of 11, 12, something horrible like that or worse, and we re-nourish them up to, you know, in quotation marks, a healthy BMI, um, we send them back out to the world. And so often we see their body pull them right back down there again. It's almost as if there's a low set point that the bo body biologically pulls them back to. Of course, there's a psychiatric component to that but they are so intertwined, I don't think you can pull them apart. Um, so in some senses, obesity and anorexia are bookends um, and this process. But so what about for those of us that have found that once, if we can get, and if we can get to a healthy weight and stay there and stay yes. there, then yes. mentally, the, I mean, for me, the anorexia, is, is, it's, it's dormant. It's dormant. Again. Yes, yes, exactly. And the fear is, and the thing that worries me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go around in a circle to that question and then come back to it. Um, the biggest risk factor for people, and I love the word, for people who have dormant anorexia, um, is finding themselves in negative energy balance again. So that means, you know, expending more energy than you're consuming. And I have seen this in three sort of friends and colleagues in the last year who had been, by all sort of parameters, they were recovered from anorexia nervosa. And then something happened in their life that messed up their energy balance. They were in prolonged negative energy balance and something clicked inside and they just went right back down again. Um, and my, my, my instinct says that there's something metabolic that happens in response to negative energy balance that triggers people who are biologically predisposed to this illness. You know, some people can be in negative energy balance for a long time and it doesn't bother them at all. But there's something about these people who are at risk for anorexia where that is just such a high risk situation for them to be in long after they've recovered. Oh, yeah. And I'm under no illusions, but that's what I have an intake safety net that I'm yeah. committed to because I know. I mean, I can feel it, actually, even in times before, years before when I was a couple of years recovered, if I went below uh, what I call my threshold weight, I yep. could feel it coming back. I could feel the irritation about I couldn't go to the gym today coming back. I could ah. feel slightly kind of irritated if I saw somebody put mayonnaise in a sandwich I didn't want it to be in. Yeah. And I, that was a very, for me, that happens at a very specific weight. And so then I worked out, well, I'll just take myself 20 pounds above that weight. And put an intake safety net yep. in there. Yep. So I, yes. I am very committed to never going below no matter what happens in my life. Yes. Because I can that feel is that. Beautiful. That is beautiful. What that process is, that's what I want to understand. I want to understand what it is, exactly what you just said, that leads to those things happening again. You know, is it metabolic? 
Is it gut brain axis? You know, we're doing so much work on the intestinal microbiome now, um, and that might have an effect. Um, you know, and I'll, I'd love to talk a little bit more about that in a minute because I think it's fascinating, and the the, the genome and the microbiome might actually be working hand in hand um, in this situation. Um, but I think, and it's that switch that parents talk without with us about too. You know, they, the, the number of times I have heard parents in my office saying it was as if a switch went off. It was as if a switch went off and then something just changed. Um, but for me, yeah. I can feel it very gradually, though, because um, for me, uh, my anorexia was very OCD behavior uh, related. And I noticed little things start to come back. Like, um, for example, I might start to, you know, I can enter my house two ways. I can walk around to the back door and I can go in the front door yep. Where, in that sort of state. I will be driven to go to the back door because it's a bit longer. And I notice things like oh, that and going wow. in the front door. And I'm talking a 10 meter difference. Yeah. But anorexia likes that difference. Oh, yeah. And oh, so yeah. Um, I, I, it's just when I start to notice things like that, I'm tending to go in the back door. Why wouldn't I just go in the front door? I know something's up. Yes. And so it can be very subtle. And I think I, I'm very like I'm always looking out for it. I think that most people probably don't even notice when it's starting to come right. back until it's a thing. Exactly. And so, um, because I know that when that sort of thing starts to happen, I've still got time to pull myself out of it. Right. But if it's at the point where I'm running an hour a day, yeah, it's, I'm not going to be able to pull myself out. You can't out do of it. it. It's, exactly. It's too hard. Exactly. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, that's actually a really important thing to talk about is developing that personal meta awareness of what the impending signs are. Because, you know, like you said, sometimes they're pretty subtle little things, little bit of mayonnaise or walking around the back. You know, there are things that under normal circumstances to someone who doesn't have this illness or the propensity for this illness, it would mean nothing. Um, but what leads one to all of a sudden go that way again? Um, that's a mystery that we really, we still need to unlock. So you're trying to unlock the what is it that energy deficit actually like? What's that button it presses? That, exactly. That or buttons. Or buttons. On, um, it's probably not one. Um, yeah. So just to go back to the microbiome a little bit, you know, this is some work that I'm doing now with Ian Carroll, who is a microbiologist. And we've been doing a lot. We've been collecting um, stool samples from people with anorexia when they're at very low weight and then after they're renourished and looking for differences. And one of the things that we found is that the gut microbiome is much less diverse um, when people are at very low weight. So you actually want to have a lot of bugs in your gut. So diversity is a really important thing. It's a sign of a healthy gut. Um, and when you start seeing sort of reduced number of, of um, bugs in your gut, that's a sign of not being well. But what we're looking at and what we're sort of hypothesizing is that, you know, what we eat also feeds the bugs in our gut. Um, and all of those bugs, um, bacteria, for a you know, better word, I guess we use the slang a lot in, when we do this work, um, they require different amounts of nutrients. So there are some bacteria that require a lot of nutrients to survive. Now, if you are a bacterium in the gut of someone with anorexia nervosa, you're not going to be getting a lot of nutrients. You're going to be getting really restricted nutrients. They're not going to come as often as you would like them to. And you're probably going to die out because it's a really competitive environment in there. So the bugs that survive are probably the ones that can do well on really limited calories and really unpredictable food sources. Um, and what we're wondering 
is if those bugs then become brilliant at extracting energy from food. So, you know, everybody says, you know, if everyone eats a raisin, you get the same number of calories from it. That is so not true. Um, and we get a lot of help in extracting calories from everything we eat from the bacteria in our intestines. Um, and if your body is one of those bodies um, and your bugs um, are some of those bugs that are so efficient at extracting energy, that might explain why people with anorexia can often survive for so long on so little food. So that's, uh, but that's a bit the same as the, the metabolism slowing and all of the other processes slowing. And they're probably all related. Um, and that's the neat thing about trying to look at them at the same time. So what we're trying to do is get genomic data and microbiome data and understand how host genomics and the microbiome actually interact in this illness. Um, because it's almost like you can't look at one without the other because the gut brain axis is, you know, everybody's doing microbiome research now. So it's sort of like the thing. Um, but at the same time, it's an important thing in this illness because the gut is so involved. Okay. So, but what, again, with, with that one, what potential implications would that sort of thing have for recovery treatment? Several, um, not definitely not going down to your local drugstore and buying a probiotic. That is not going to fix it. Glad you said that. (laughs) Exactly. Because that's usually people's first response. Um, you know, what we're looking at is much more tailored interventions. You know, are there certain bacteria that we could reintroduce, um, that might make the process of renourishment, um, really more palatable to people with eating disorders because, you know, refeeding is uncomfortable, you know, and it's, it's so unpleasant to put people through this treatment and it's hard enough to sort of like win against anorexia when it hurts so much to be refed. You know, there's bloating and there's gas and there's GI problems and there's constipation. Um, and if we can figure out a way to sort of reduce sort of the agony associated with renourishment, um, that might really help us too. Right, because uh, renourishment really is the key. That's, right. That's what gets us well. Um, exactly. I want to go back to that point um, that you said earlier about the lower set point. And the reason for this is because I know my anorexia brain and I also know my listeners. And I know, and I'm talking to you guys out there, I know that some of them all said, oh, she's saying that I don't need to weight restore completely. Oh, <laughs> I'm saying the opposite. Um the, the, the phrase that I often use is getting healthy if you have anorexia nervosa is fighting an uphill battle against your biology. Um, and what that means is that it's a lot harder um, for you to gain the weight that you need to gain to be well um, than it is for everyone else out there um, just to Bingo. gain weight over Christmas or and, whatever holiday and, they celebrate. And that is why I tell people my weight gain intake was more like 10,000 calories a day. Yes. Yes. And part of that might be bug related too. Right. You know, because those little bugs are just like, you know, using it up and burning it up like crazy. Yeah. Um, And until you repopulate your gut, um, you know, you're going to have to keep your calorie intake high um, until your metabolism normalizes and your gut becomes more diverse um, and your biology just gets back in kilter. I don't know if you could be in kilter. Is that the opposite of out of, out of kilter? I have no idea. Um, but appropriately balanced is really what we're after. Yeah, um, because it, it astounded me how much I had to eat to yes. to weight restore and to get to the point where I was healthy as well. And it was so much more because I weight restored out of traditional treatment. Thank goodness, because if I had, I would have probably thought I should have been eating more like 
two or three thousand calories a day to yeah. weight restore, which is what the guidelines are. But yeah. I didn't know, and I, I think I actually just use, more use common sense. I'm not gaining weight. I need to eat more food. Eat and more, yeah. my intake went very high. Um, with no, so your logical math brain worked. Yeah, in that it was just common, yeah. it was just common sense. I'm underweight. Yeah. I need to eat a lot of food, and <laughs> I didn't have any ideas though. Otherwise, I didn't have any conflicting information as to oh, you might get refeeding syndrome, or oh, that's a bad idea, or oh, you might gain weight too fast and freak out about it. I didn't have any of that information so I just did what seemed like common sense and that's not to say it was easy I still had anorexia telling me don't but you know I still I had to get my intake incredibly high but then when you look at Minnesota starvation study there those guys intakes between five and ten thousand calories as well absolutely absolutely Um, and that all just speaks right back to the metabolism thing right you know it's just it all it make it's making so much more sense to me now you know, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I think about things that I had thought about in, you know, through one lens, like for the past 20 years. And then all of a sudden it's like, I see them in a new lens and I'm like, wow, this really changes the way I think about this illness. And it might really change the way ultimately that we treat this illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe the reason we're so bad at treating it is we focus so much on the psychiatry part and we miss the focus on the metabolism part. Food and yeah, yes. and the, those processes. So let me ask you about, um, I, I found it very helpful in, in my own recovery when I, I started to, I just started to think of my anorexia and especially the behaviors as, as OCD rather than anything else. Like mm-hmm. it just went, you know, and some of mine were so purely OCD that you couldn't, you couldn't even pretend like some of the things I did, um, my brain could pile logic on top of it and say, yeah. you're doing this thing for this reason. But some of yep. them, it couldn't even do that. It was just so blatant. You're doing this for energy deficit. Um, and so for me, and I was never, I never went to therapy. So I didn't have that influence of psychoanalysis. Never, ever? Never. I've wow. Never, ever. I have never been in the therapist's office wow. um, for anorexia. No. Um, but because like the first, even my doctor who wasn't a therapist, when he was asking me to go to therapy, he was saying it because I needed to like help with my, underlying conditions and I thought I don't have any I was a happy <laughs> child I, you know I just I knew it wasn't right I knew it, it didn't yeah. make sense yeah. to me mm-hmm. I knew that I didn't have any trauma I knew that I didn't have any underlying reasons and yep. I just you know I just thought it was all bullshit I didn't go um <laughs> but because I didn't go I, like again common sense I was just sort of begin. To, I was able to see my behaviors and see that's just OCD I need to stop and just, you right. know, I need to stop, which is not easy. But I did. it gave me, it wasn't, I need to wait until I'd healed my relationship with my mother, friend, dog before I stop. It was just, I need to stop. Right. <laughs> um, the, the other reason that psychotherapy just wasn't going to work for me is because people kept telling me that I was doing it to control things. And, oh. I, and you, you, there's nothing as being as out of control as not being able to eat food. I mean, and you're talking to somebody who also ran for over six hours a day that's oh, not in God. control that's painful. that's not control and i hate yeah. i hate running so yeah <laughs> oh, oh. I hate it. <laughs> even more so yeah. so that wasn't control and i knew it wasn't control um but I, i'm interested in your thoughts on sort of the parallels between ocd as you know yeah. you're talking yeah. about psychiatric disorders yep happy to um but first i'm going to comment on control so make sure i come back to ocd um I, I actually think that that control myth 
um, is something that therapists often gift to their patients as an explanation for what they're going through. The number of times I hear people explain eating disorders, well, it's the only thing I can control. Um, and I'm not convinced that that necessarily came from their own self-examination um, because it is so out of control. And it's one of those myths that's out there that anorexia is all about control. Um, and yes, there's some control associated with it, but it's not, quote, all about control, unquote. Final word on that. Okay, back to OCD. So remember we were talking about genetic correlations before. So if you look across the psychiatric and neurological disorders, um, one of the strongest genetic correlations, and remember by that I mean same genes, and it's positive working in the same direction, is between anorexia nervosa and OCD. So I the could cry. I could cry hearing you say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, we see it clinically all the time. So we see the comorbidity in the clinic, but now we see the comorbidity in the genes. So the same genes are active in both of the illnesses. Um, and you know, that maybe not in everybody, you know, I'm guessing that there are probably, you know, a subset of people with anorexia like yourself for whom the OCD is really prominent. You know, there's a smaller group of people who for their anorexia, there's more sort of an autism spectrum component to it. Um, and there might be some, frankly, who are purely metabolic, um, you know, and that, that's one of the things that these genetic correlations are going to allow us to figure out whether there are subgroups who are more OCD, more Asperger's, more metabolic. But that also means we can tailor the treatment more. So, you know, somehow you figured out brilliantly that if you label it as OCD and do that sort of internal mental stop thing, you could get a handle on some of the mm -hmm. symptoms. Yeah. Um, and that's what we would do with a more OCD presentation in therapy. Yeah. Um, it is not going to end up being a one size fits all treatment for this illness with the exception of food. So no matter what, to your listeners again, um, you know, no matter what, renourishment is going to be the first step and the most important step. Yes. Um, but then we're going to be able to start parsing out sort of where on the genomic spectrum the illness lies and what the best approach is going to be. And my, I might be a little Pollyanna in this, but it just fits so much with what I see clinically over the years that we have different presentations. You know, everybody doesn't have that OCD component. Um, and so why would I give someone who doesn't have that OCD component a treatment that focuses on the OCD component? Yeah. That's just silly. Um, so we really need to figure out how to tr tailor our interventions um, through both what the symptoms look like and what the underlying genetics are. Yeah, and I think that's it's also where um, the field trips up on itself because, like, some of us do feel like you know I felt the OCD component, but then somebody else treating somebody who a population who hadn't experienced that much will say that's rubbish. There isn't any OCD involved. And it all trips over e each other. Yeah. And it's all, it's all correct, dependent on, you know, people who read my blog tend to come to me are people who were like massive over-exercisers. Over yeah. And yeah. because that's what I write about. So that's, you know, that's what I attract. Right. And so, of course, I see more of the OCD right. population. Yeah. But, yeah. No. And, and that's fine. I mean, in some ways, that's good. Because that helps cluster people, um, you know, you might actually have you might have a more genetically homogeneous group of listeners and readers based on the topic that you focus on. Um, yeah, and that's what we need to do with treatment too. 
the other thing that I think is um, where we trip over ourselves is, um, well, especially, say, with the OCD stuff, I mean, honestly, some of it is so embarrassing, the silly things, the little things that they used to do. And um, especially psychotherapy, it, it doesn't ask, you know, it doesn't ask people questions like, when you enter the house, do you go in the front door or the back door? And if it's the back door, do you go in the back door just because there's 10 extra steps to do? Right. Which is the kind of question I would ask. Um, yeah. But but it's not standard. And so right. people, we don't volunteer that stuff. We don't yeah. like it because I didn't even volunteer it to my own self for a long time because I just yeah. thought I'm going to get locked up if I even, you know, allow myself to sort of think about what I'm doing. It's so yeah. crazy. Um, yeah. And um, you know, those I think those of us with a strong OCD component, it filters into every moment of every waking day. And so it's it's you can't even sort of sometimes tease out the behaviors. It's just in everything. Um, yeah. But we don't, most people won't admit it. They, yeah. I actually wrote about this. I can't for the life of me remember what book I wrote about this in. And that sounds like really arrogant, but I just really don't remember. Um, and I talked about the importance of radical honesty and not holding on to nuggets, like security nuggets. Um, and like you said, some of them you don't even know are necessarily part of it. But like the walking around the house, we'll just stick with that one. It's like, you know, sometimes people will hold on to just one or two behaviors as security blankets, like in case it gets too anxiety provoking to recover. Um, but if you really want to get well, you got to open up that entire suitcase, let it all out, share it with someone um, and be accountable for it because it doesn't serve any purpose to hold on to an out like that because it just increases the likelihood that you're going to use it and you're going to relapse in the future. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we were, we were talking about sort of thresholds of that, like with the, we were talking about the energy deficit threshold. I know that when right. I if I got lower to a certain weight, I know certain behaviors will start coming back. Um, yeah. It's, it's, uh, I also noticed that I had a, a day full of OCD type behaviors and eating rituals and you name it, I did it. Um, but one of the things that I found that I, I sort of tricked my brain into doing was if I woke up in the morning and the first thing I did was eat a piece of chocolate, which was so against anorexia and so against, and it wasn't in my rituals and it was just against everything that I was allowed to do. The rest of the OCD chain was weakened that day. That's awesome. But if I woke up in the morning and I went to the gym, which was yeah. my default, then yeah. it, I would not. You tried to get me to eat a piece of chocolate after going to the wouldn't gym. Happen. It wasn't going to happen. I couldn't. It was. I was already in it. I was just in that groove, that rut. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really neat, that, that, there's a technique called acting opposite, um, which is like when, if you're very depressed and all you want to do is lie in bed and pull the covers over your head, you know, the thing that therapy recommends is that you just put on your, put on your bra, you know, put on your shoes, get out of the house and do the exact opposite of what your body wants you to do. Um, and what you did with the chocolate is the exact same thing that is acting opposite because the anorexia I'm sure would have preferred going to the gym. Um, as with the OCD, but you just undercut it, acted opposite, and then it just it makes the rest of the chain just break. But and the, the reason it's so hard though is because anorexia promises that if you go to the gym, eating will be easier. Yeah, it, it, no. it makes all these promises that make 
doing the acting opposite seem, you know, and then anorexia says, are you kidding? You really think that if you eat a piece of chocolate, you're going to be able to eat breakfast? Yeah. Are you kidding? That's not going to happen. But it yeah. does. It works the opposite way around. And yeah. um, you yeah. know, a lot of people whom I've worked with, I, I get them to do that in the morning. That's what I want you to do. I want you to wake up and I want you to eat the very thing that anorexia hates the most. Yeah. Yep. And if they do that, they again notice that the chains weakened, that they're right propensity to want to they, they are more able to fight against the other OCD behaviors which it's you know it's a fascinating illness um but it, you know it's it's a mental illness and you know if you think about how the brain how neurons fire then it makes sense that there would be an OCD sort of chain and it all hooks onto one another right yep um, and you've got to try and make the neurons fire down a different route yeah which is yep. incredibly difficult but um it's 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 incredible to me actually also that once I got on and I'd worked a few things out how quickly I was able to to pick it up and right. I was quickly able to work other things out as well like like a big puzzle. What I love about that is you know we were talking about control before um, and in essence what you were doing is taking control of the disorder before it took control of you. Um, yes. You know so really it wasn't the anorexia that was in control at all. Um, or it, it didn't give you control. It anorexia was in control, but you took control away from it by eating the chocolate first. Yeah, um, I had to give so, my, I had to give myself pretty much a nervous breakdown to do that. Yeah, exactly. Time. Yeah, but, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. but you know, I just thought that I was just so sick of it. I thought anything. I can't do another day of all these rituals. I just can't do it. I need to change. I need to try something drastic. Um, but then it's it's. What you then have to deal with is the mental and very physical repercussions of going against what the anorexia wants you to do. You know, I would sweat and shake and really feel like I was having a breakdown. Recovery, recovery is not an easy thing. You know, it's, it's, I've never, I don't think I've ever in my entire career heard anyone say, oh yeah, recovery from anorexia, that was a piece of cake. You know, that just has never those words have never been uttered. Um, I'd love to ask you about um, another thing I think about a lot is the the levels of body dysmorphia. I mean, I tend to think, just because I didn't have it, I tend to think of it as a comorbid to anorexia. Body dysmorphia is a comorbid rather than I actually guaranteed to be with anorexia because I, I, I never had body dysmorphia. So, but I, I, I sure as hell had anorexia. Right, and right, right. that was actually one of the reasons that my doctor wasn't did, didn't ever actually diagnose me because I didn't have body dysmorphia and I could not say yeah I hate my body and so yeah no um so again another story okay so I um I grew up playing the organ so I love churches so I, whenever I'm in Europe I visit churches and listen to organists and things like that and I was walking around Rome with one of my postdocs who was Italian and we saw this nondescript church and we went into it. Um, and lo and behold, it was where the, um, the, the burial of St. Catherine of Siena was. So she was there in the church and this was back in the 1500s, I think maybe. And the, the curator knew everything about St. Catherine of Siena. As it turns out, St. Catherine of Siena, um, was basically an anorexic saint. Mm -hmm. Every single thing she had was textbook anorexia nervosa. Um, with the exception of she had no body dysmorphia and 
everything about her anorexia was packaged in purity and getting closer to God in saintliness. Um, all of this stuff that we wrap around the core of anorexia nervosa is packaging. Um, you know, if you go back through history, you see all sorts of different packaging, but the core is still the same. Um, and across cultures as well. So in Asia, you see often cases that look just like anorexia nervosa, but they don't have the drive for thinness and the body dysmorphia. It's still anorexia nervosa. Um, whether it's comorbid or not, I don't know. Um, it might just be a different presentation as well. Um, you know, I know a lot of people who have had the illness for a very long time who, as they get farther along, like 30 years, 40 years with the illness, they can see that they're thin. So that part tends to dissolve a little bit. Yes. Um, so it's not like it's there and it stays there at the same level the whole time. It's a fluctuating symptom for many people. Yeah. And um, I'm glad that you brought up the starving saints there because <laughs> it, it, that actually really helped me. That's, that's one thing I did read about in, in sort of I was mid-recovery and that that really helped me with my my understanding of like I cannot have body dysmorphia and I cannot care about skinny models and the media mm -hmm. and I can still have this illness absolutely yeah and um you know and I also I'm I'm, I'm strongly um, atheist but I know that if somebody told when I was sick when I was in when my illness if somebody said to me oh this is you know you're starving for God I would have been like sign me up <laughs> hallelujah you know like yeah <laughs> i'm starving for god that's what it is if you told me that i would have just taken that run with it right and one thing that i do think that everybody that i all like we all have different expressions of the illness but it is a martyring illness like in oh, some way yeah. or another it m turns into martyrs you know i couldn't spend money that was a big one but you know like everything else it's like you always have to eat last you always have to eat the yes. least it's yes. it's the it's a martyr's illness and that's a very horrible component of it as well because I totally agree you know um I'm not a martyr I'm absolute I'm I'm really not you know I'm like feed me first but <laughs> the illness turned me completely complete that you know very yeah. different person and yeah. um, it's I I find that another thing that's not talked about enough is for a lot of us we can't spend money and again we don't volunteer that and it's not in dsm5 or whatever but we have funky relationships with other things that's yes. all to do with like the energy flow intake spending money is again it's it's energy yes. flow and i couldn't spend i used to steal toilet roll because i couldn't buy it i mean toilet roll was 23 pence a roll yep when i was yep. at university and i could not spend 23 pence yeah. on the toilet roll i used to steal yeah. it from the university toilets what drove you to do that? What was the process it's, in your brain? It was the same feeling. If you'd asked me to eat a biscuit, it was the same yeah. feeling if you asked me to buy some toilet roll. It was, I couldn't do it. It was immense fear. And like that, I used to go into the freeze. So fight, fight, freeze. I used to go into freeze. And yeah. I would walk into a store and go into freeze. Like, I can't do it. I can't spend money. I had to address that in order to recover. I had to yes. set myself a minimum spending budget every freaking week and meet it. Because, you know, you have to buy food to recover as an adult. Right, right. If you can't spend money, that's a big hindrance. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's a great point. It's like, what other parts of your life um, do you engage in anorexic-like behaviors? 
Um, you know, in your case, it was it was money. You know, and this is always packaged in terms of, oh, yes, the person with anorexia thinks they don't deserve food or they don't no. deserve things. It's like, no, you're psychologizing it again. You know, there's something that paralyzes them at that yeah, moment. It was, it was fear response. It was HPA yeah. access. Like, I know yeah. that I know that I know that feeling. It's yeah. like freeze. I can't do it. And that's it's, it was exactly the same with food and, and other aspects as well, but mostly the money for me. And, um, you, you know, like some people, again, they don't have the money aspect though, but you know, I think more do than is talked about and more do than is because it's it, it, again, with society saving money is very, you know, it's exactly. To do. It's like losing weight. It's a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, you know, when you start on your path toward anorexia and you lose some pounds, people give you compliments. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you're a good saver, people are like, oh, yes, you're really careful and you're thinking about your future and blah, blah, blah. Not so much in this case. Yeah. And that came back with your weight restoration really helped with that as well. I was able to spend more, um, you know, and now spending money. Yeah, there's not a problem. But it's <laughs> it, it, that also came back with weight restoration and that the money spending thing. Again, I used to notice if I dropped below my threshold, that would be sticky. I just would find myself being like, you don't really need that, do you? You know, don't buy that. I mean, what the hell? (laughs) I love that that word sticky. I think that is such a great word because it's exactly what it is. Mm. Um, It's like a fly trap, you know, in your brain and you just get stuck on it. And you got to shake yourself free of it the minute you see it coming back. Yeah. Um, but so what's so what's next for for you, uh, research wise? Yeah. So here's the good news. Um, you know, one of the things that we saw with all the other psychiatric disorders that are ahead of us is once they find their first gene, as they increase their sample size, they start finding more. Um, and right now we've got over thirteen thousand samples at the Broad Institute in Boston waiting to be genotyped. So within the next couple months, we're going to have a huge infusion of more genotypes. And we're going to do the same thing, rinse and repeat, do a GWAS over again and see what genes shake out. And then what we can do with that is, you know, we can start finding pathways because it's not just about the single genes. It's about how these genes hang together biologically and maybe influence these metabolic processes or these OCD processes. Um, And not only can we do that just with um, anorexia, you're going to love this. One of the first things we're doing across disorders is we're putting the anorexia and the OCD GWAS together. I think I, I know that when we put those two GWASs together, we're going to find those overlapping genetic factors that really do work in both. We, you know, our bodies don't conform to the DSM. You know, the genome doesn't have little chapters where things are, you know, classified in certain ways. And it's the overlap that's going to open up the doors to understanding comorbidity. Um, so that is high on the list. Once we get all these samples genotyped, that's um, after we do the disorder specific one and just look at the anorexia GWAS, then we combine it with OCD and see what's going on there. So you need to send me an email and we need to do this again because you obviously this is a hot topic for you and your and your listeners it's it's really it's really important to me because what what treatment does right now is it will weight restore someone but it weight restore them with all these ocd right. behaviors yeah. intact and so that's why you know there's still so many hooks in them that they'll get weight restored and then they're still doing all the behaviors right. so they lose right. the weight right. immediately whereas if you can weight restore somebody and also get them stopping the yep. behaviors, then, then they tend to or yeah. recover 
but st- just stay there, just be able to stay there. And so it's it's really what it means for the people on the ground, right. I think, which is can you start looking for these things as well and helping people with these things? Because it's yeah. hell. Having to do all those rituals is yes. hell. Yes, it's, 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 uh, there's no better word. But I think, I think you're right. The therapists have to ask more questions and the people with the illness have to be willing to give it up. Exactly. Yeah. And it's that pairing that we need to see more of. And what we need to work out is how to get the people with the illness to that point. Because right. that's the question that I get asked by parents the most when they've got yeah. a resistant child or yeah. even worse, a resistant 19-year-old which they can, who they, whom they can no longer I know. refeed, tell what to do. And it's they always say, how did you get to the point where you were willing to do everything that you could to recover? And the... The sad answer was just pure desperation and exhaustion. Right. You know, I was suicidal at that point. We yeah. don't. So it's like, how do we get it so that people don't have to get to that point in order for them to be receptive to treatment? Yeah. And I will be completely honest with you. Um, I totally understand the importance of becoming 18 and becoming independent and, you know, having your privacy. But I think there's there is nothing that breaks my heart more than getting an email from a mom or a dad who has a child who's 19 or 20 or 21 and might emotionally be more like 14 or 13. um, And they can't do anything because of the privacy laws. It's like this illness requires you to be engaged in their treatment and to be shut out is detrimental to the whole family. Um, so I, I think that's a big one that we've got to figure out a better way around, not only in this country, but in other countries as well. So, so far, I think we've had quite a lot of interesting information from, um, Cindy Buick about how this can be used to guide treatment. But, um, in this next bit, she goes into that in a a little bit more detail or explains it a different way that I thought was really, really helpful and very interesting. Here's Cindy. I actually don't make a distinction between above the neck and below the neck. Um, You know, I think these are all physical illnesses. They've got psychiatric components, but psychiatry is biological. You know, the bacteria in your gut is biological. We have to look at biology and psychiatry as linked. Um, So, you know, do I think there's hope? Yes. Do I think we're too late? I mean, far too many people have died from this illness. I I wish we could have done this 20 years ago. And I I just think it is appalling that anorexia still kills people. Um, It it, it shouldn't. It's crazy that it still has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness. And, you know, what drives me, what gets me out of bed in the morning is I want to stop that. If this is hopefully this will be a path that will take us down to some answers so we can treat this illness more quickly, more effectively, and keep people well. Well, I don't know about you, but I'll certainly be keeping my eyes and ears open for further developments. Watch this space, people. We'll get to the bottom of anorexia yet. So what were my favorite parts from that conversation? I'll tell you. First, the message that food and nutritional rehabilitation comes first and foremost in treatment. Check that. Second, that we treat the individual. I had severe OCD elements to my expression of anorexia, but not a body dysmorphia. And some of you will have the severe body dysmorphia, and some of you will have very little in terms of OCD behaviours, etc, etc. The only blanket treatment has to be the food part, and the rest will depend on the person. Those of you suffering from the illness can help guide treatment in this respect, but in order to do so, we have to be honest in places where most of the time we'd really rather not. I hope that some of you are as excited about this research as I am 
I mean, we should be. Just think, when we can start to view anorexia nervosa as a psychiatric and metabolic condition, treatment will change. Everything will change. The way that we approach it will change. The way that treatment centers approach it will change. And that's exciting because it needs to change. As Cynthia Bulick said, people are still dying of this illness and there's no reason for that. When we change the way that we view the condition, then treatment will change. And that's a good thing. And I really hope that it changes fast. I'm going to link to this study in the show notes. I'm also going to link to Cynthia Bulick's website and so you can find out more about her and keep up with what's going on. If I hear anything though, I'll let you guys know first. Thanks for listening and until next time, cheers and cheerio.